Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is engineer and mobile recording owner Steve Remote. First of all, there's an upcoming change in the music business that you might not be aware of, but it's going to come down, and I think it's going to come down rather fast. Spotify announced about a week ago that it was doing direct deals with artists. So what does that mean exactly? It means it's going around the record labels and saying, we're going to pay you more if you sign with us direct. Now, this is a non-exclusive deal. It allows them to actually go and sign with other streaming services if they want. Now, here's the upside for both. For Spotify, they're now paying out 54% of the revenue that they take in to the major record labels, 54%. Now, if they do a direct deal, they're only going to pay 50%. Okay, now that sounds like there's less money going out, and there is. But here's the whole thing. If you're signed to a record label as an artist, you're only seeing 20% to maybe 50% of what the record label is collecting. So in other words, you're only seeing, if you're lucky, 50% of that 54% that's coming in from Spotify. You're only seeing half of the money that's available or less. So now what Spotify is saying is, if you do a direct deal with us, then you can see all of that money that we're paying out. And in the meantime, we get some cost savings, which is a big deal to them now that they're public. So that sounds really good, doesn't it? But if you're an artist and you're signed to the label, you can't do this direct deal because you already have a deal. So Spotify isn't even trying to do the deal with anybody that's signed. They're going to indie artists that have a buzz and they're trying to get them before they sign their record deals. Okay, so far so good. The record labels aren't taking that lying down, however. They see the writing on the wall that, in fact, if more and more artists get used to this, they're going to say, well, why do we even need to sign with the record label to begin with? So they're fighting back. And what they're doing is threatening Spotify with withholding their licenses when Spotify wants to enter a new territory. And of course, the big one here is India. And India has, what, a third the population of the earth here? So there's a big, huge potential audience there. that The record labels are saying, eh, we're not going to allow you to get any of that unless maybe you rethink this. That being said, the genie's kind of out of the bottle now. And Apple Music is thinking about doing the same thing, about doing direct deals. In fact, what might happen now is you're going to see more and more companies like BMG. BMG stopped being a record label five, six, seven years ago and instead transition to what they call a rights management company. So basically what they say to an artist is, you're not going to release records anyway, or physical records anyway, or not many of them, and if you decide to do, we'll find a distributor for that, so no problem. But what you really need is someone to look out for your intellectual property rights, and we're going to do that. So what they've been saying all along to artists is, look, we'll give you all of the advantages of a record label, but for streaming, we're going to give you 75% of the income that comes in. And for an artist, an artist will go, wow, okay, I do need the infrastructure and sometimes I need the visibility and publicity that a record label can arrange and not have to take on a lot of this myself and worry about it myself. So maybe this is the way to go. So I think you're going to see major record labels, the three major ones, Sony, Universal, and Warner's, 
maybe change the way they do business pretty soon and go more towards the BMG model, the rights management model, and be a little bit more generous with their record label agreements with artists. So keep a lookout for that because we're only at the beginning of this, but we're going to see a big change in the business coming up. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Check out my Hitmakers Club for access to the Private Mixers Facebook group, monthly deconstructed hits, mixing workshop, and Q&A webinars for a short time, access to my core training module bonus. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, you've all probably been reading about the upcoming trade war with China. And let me give you some facts on that because it's pretty interesting. The big thing is if we impose trade penalties on China, they're going to do the same thing on us. So how does that work for musical instruments and audio gear? And you know that if you buy something now, whatever you buy, chances are it's going to come from China. And in fact, that's true. 65% of all music gear last year came from China. So... Most of the stuff we buy winds up coming from there right now because it's cheap, cheap labor. Well, here's the deal. The United States already has an import tax. It's 3 to 4.2% on all music gear-related imports. China, on the other hand, charges 34%. That sounds like a lot, but in fact, they're not the only ones. Israel is 17%. France is 23%, Brazil is 35%, and Argentina is a whopping 39%. So there are other countries that do the same thing. So let me just give you some apples-to-apples comparison here. A Martin D28, which is totally made in the United States, costs about $2,850 retail. But in China, you have to add another $800 in taxes. So it becomes a $3,600 guitar in China. Now, on the other hand, if we were to import a similar Chinese guitar, and I'm not saying it'd be exactly the same because nothing's like a Martin, but something that's similar, it would cost about $200 and the import tax would be $4. Now, if we look at a Bach Stradivarius trumpet, again, kind of top of the line, it's $2,900 in the U.S. And in China, add another $800, so it becomes $3,700, a lot more expensive. A typical Chinese imported trumpet is about $350, and the import tax is $6.50. Another one, a Steinway Model B, fully made in the United States. It costs $108,700 retail in the United States, but in China at another $40,000. Now, on the other hand, a Chinese import piano, something similar, is $15,500 with the $220 import tax. Okay, well, that sounds like a big disparity, doesn't it? But the fact of the matter is, the Chinese aren't going to import our cheap audio and music gear. They have plenty of their own, and we don't make any. So that's not going to happen anyway. If you can afford to pay $2,900 for a trumpet in China, you probably will afford the other $800 if you can see the difference. And the same with a Steinway. If you really want a Steinway, you'll pay the extra money in China. So the fact of the matter is, regardless what happens here, American imports 
are not going to go up because we just don't make a lot of that gear here. And the stuff that we do make is way expensive. It's in a different league. So what could happen is all of the Chinese imports could get a lot more expensive. We're used to paying not too much money and for prices going down instead of up. Get ready to pay more for everything. That being said, manufacturing for audio gear and for music gear has slowly and steadily been moving away from China, and it's been going instead to Indonesia and Vietnam. So that may take some of the pressure off, but it's not going to take it off in the near future. But anyway, it's very interesting to see what's happening in these trade wars and how it affects the gear that we use every day. Remote recording is an audio discipline that's distinctly different from many others and something my guest today knows so much about. Steve Remote is founder and chief engineer of Arasonic, a mobile and location production company out of New York. Steve's been working in remote recording almost his entire professional life, and Arasonic has grown to feature three mobile audio recording trucks and an extensive list of rental gear and services. During his career, Steve has worked on a who's who's list of the music world, which includes 17 Grammy-nominated albums, which three have won. We had a really good discussion about the differences between studio and live recording, the importance of power, and the gear that Steve favors. We spoke via Skype from his company offices in New York. Let's first start with, how did you get in the business? Well, uh, you know, it's kind of strange in the sense that uh, it was really daydreaming in high school. You know, sitting there doodling, building a mobile unit and, and stuff like that. And uh, right around the time I graduated, that year before I incorporated my company, I basically went out and bought a little mixer and uh, a Revox A700 uh, tape recorder, eight microphones, a headset, and little Crown D60, no less. You know, and went out and just started doing all these recordings. You know, the uh, you know the, the the kind of interesting thing about it is, and and no disrespect to any of the schools. You know, I after spending uh, my internship the uh, last year of high school at Walter Sears Studio, Sears Sound, way back when, I knew this is definitely something I wanted to get into, and also being part of the. Uh, one of five schools uh, that the city got an electronic music program. Uh, one uh, one school, one high school in each borough of the New York City got an electronic music lab, and so you know I fell in love with that early on, and uh, pretty much st- stayed there all day long. I cut my classes, and you know <laughs> was in that in that place. Yeah, and so I felt it was you know important to. Uh, continue that. So I took on an uh, internship at Walter Sear and basically met some really awesome people, thought this was definitely the direction I wanted to go to, but with the idea that I wanted to have it mobile, you know, be able to go to any location or any any uh, any environment that's out there and, and do my thing. So uh, it, I went around looking for schools so I can, you know, better my education and you know, found some places and, you know, back then, you know, schools were, you know, semester was costing, you know, three grand, $3,500. And, you know, I thought that was a lot of money. You know, now, you know, you think about what school costs, uh, you know, you're closer to 50, 60 grand. Yeah. And, uh, but interestingly, I, I said to myself, I said, well, you know, I went to all these schools and 
I thought that at the time IAR was the best one because of the fact that they were also teaching the math. So it's okay, this is important. But I looked around, I said, man, there's some old gear and old stuff. And I said, what are they going to teach me? You know, they're going to teach me to pass the class, you know, but they're going to really give me any insight on really what it's going to take to do what I do. So I decided to take the money that I was saving up and instead of, you know, putting it towards the schooling, I went out and bought equipment. And, you know, <laughs> it was it was kind of like an incredible thing because, you know, drive around with my car with the gear in the trunk. And I remember once uh, going to Maxis, Kansas City, to, and the New York Dolls were playing that weekend. And I walked in there, and I went up to Peter Crowley while he was sitting here setting up a cassette machine. And said, hey, man, you know, I got all this gear out in my trunk of my car. Why don't I record this thing? And he's like, yeah, man, come on in. And, you know, the rest is history. Wow. So so a year later, I started my company. And considering, you know, I was 18 years old when I started Orisonic. And uh, literally, Bobby, it's the only gig I've ever had. E- ever since I started my company, I never worked for anybody else. It's the only job I've ever had. That's pretty amazing, Steve. Wow, there's not many people that could say that. Yeah, you know, and the the interesting thing is my folks were like, you know, first 13 years of my life was, uh, you know, we were in the red. You know, I was completely, and not always because of not making any money, but just reinvesting and just constantly building. And, And so my folks were like, what are you nuts? Like, get a job to hold yourself over. And I was like, man, if I do that, I, how do I put 100% into what I'm doing? So I was like really struggling only until like the early 90s where we start saying, oh, wow, you know, um, we're in the red. Everything is groovy and okay, this is awesome, <laughs> you know. Well, let's talk about the evolution then of the company because you started with a handful of gear like you were saying and now it's developed into a whole enterprise with three trucks. You have three, right? Yeah. And rental gear and everything else. So how did that happen? Well, just, uh, you know, um, like I've always said, you know, I'm sort of like a map designer. You know, I came up with exactly the direction that I needed to take. And, you know, I don't always do things right away and but I do plan you know I do a lot of uh you know organization and pre-planning pre-production you know just getting all this stuff in 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 play and I'd put it in books and I'd make all my uh assessments of what I want to do over the years and then little by little just you know chip along and and make things happen and so early on, I had an idea that I wanted to, you know, do build a mobile unit. So the, the first year, uh, you know, I've designed and built seven trucks, and I'm now in the middle of my six-and-a-half truck. One of the trucks is, needs to be completed and stuff. But um, not always did I have multiple vehicles. Um, you know, I'd build one tear it apart, rebuild it, you know, a number of times and then get rid of it and get in a second truck and on and on. So, um, you know, it's, it, it's a, if you look at all the drawings and all the books and you go over the years and you go, wow, you know, this, there's this course that happens. So, 
you know how you, a lot of people, you know, they, they, they can't even figure out what they want to do tomorrow. I'm trying to figure out, well, what do I want to do in the next five years? Mm. What do I want to do in the next 10 years? And so I create this map. And so I may not have traveled every route, but I know when I'm ready to travel that route where to go because it's already there. So right now, uh, in the midst of putting together Cosmo, um, it, it, you know, I started that in, you know, it's incredible how long ago it was, uh, the summer of 2009. And, you know, we put it on a little hiatus for a minute, but the book is there, you know, and I looked at it, I dusted it off the other day because we're planning to get this uh, happening this, this fall, you know, to try to get it up and running. Um, and uh, what's, what's cool about it is all the drawings, all the information, everything that I need to do that could have been done in three months is <laughs> going to eventually be done. So what I do to also, you know, because as time passes, things could change, right? Yeah. So a lot of times when I draw something out, Bobby, what I do is I'll draw it out but never look at what I've drawn a day or a month before with the with the intention that if I redraw it, rethink it out. Did I leave something out? Did I add something new in? And then I'd go back and compare my notes to what I already had. And uh, it's kind of cool because, you know, I look at it and I go, oh, okay, it's the same exact thing. Hmm. Uh, a, a couple of times, and it kind of blows my buddies away when I show them the drawings, I can almost put the drawings up to light, you know, pages next to each other and they're the same exact size and everything, you know, like, and you see, I, I signed it a different date that could be weeks or months prior and they all look the same pretty much, you know, it's like kind of, kind of eerie wow. <laughs> that I can somehow do that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's what it's all about. So, you know, as, and, and, you know, the other thing is, you know, I never really had the opportunity to have anybody to follow. You know, I have many people that I've respected over the year and love uh, quite a few engineer producers and stuff, their work. Uh, but I never really, you know, I've always, for for good or bad, you know, always was my own leader. You know, I always kind of did my own thing. I remember once being on a TV shoot, with this, you know, amazing video truck and they look at my truck and this, I think they were referring, uh, I think it was uh, the Jethro and, you know, he looks at this guy cause he, uh, he looks at the truck and cause man, you know, this is the most unique truck. I've never seen anybody build it like this. And, and the reason why that's the case, cause I never followed it. I just figured out what I wanted to do, you know, right or wrong, you know, I did it my way. And, you know, over time, if I felt, there was a problem with it, I'd redo it. And I wouldn't have a problem with, you know, putting something and spending tens of thousands of dollars and realizing, holy shit, this is not right. I got to redo it and I'll just trash it, you know, and redo it because I'd rather have it right than, than to sit there and deal with uh, something I don't like because I spent the money. That's like the wrong reason, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Should've right. Planned it out a little better. So when he looked at it, he goes, man, you know, and just one one quick thing, which yeah. was the really important part of all this. Most people, when they design a studio, let alone a mobile unit, they have one power uh, distribution point. You know, you have one power panel with all your breakers. Right. Well, 
everything I design has to do with a solution of what could have been a problem in the past. So everything was all split up, and now it's gone to even a higher level with Elroy. Of uh, there are five different power panels there, so each one has their own purpose, and you can have people double and triple dipping in that truck and not affecting each other. Same thing with the patch bays, same thing with interfacing. So everybody got their own little world, so no one's going to pull a patch from somebody else's project. So you can have multiple things happening at the same time. And that had a lot to do with me just daydreaming about it and figuring out, well, this is the way I would need to do it because one intern turned off the wrong switch and turned off the feed to blah, blah, blah. Can't let that happen a second time. I get that. It makes a lot of sense. But that being said, how difficult is it to get multiple power sources when you're on a gig? Well, it's it's not the multiple power sources in the sense I well we we um it's really more about how they distribute it after uh, the output of the isolation transformer. Got it, got but it. But that being said, uh that being said, there there is two uh inputs. So you can split up the power twice. There are two isolation transformers. And one's called the main and the other one's called aux, meaning that I could actually have a, a second client. Let's say we're doing a, a shoot and uh, there's a day and night crew happening. So let's say the day crew is capturing the show and we got shore power from the from the venue. And then let's say at night, um, you know, some Japanese network or somewhere in Asia needs uh to broadcast or do work for for their part of that show, well, we can set up a generator to that second isolation transformer that's going to their own uh, power panels, and they can have their gear set up, their patch points, all that stuff, completely separated and isolated from what's going on in the main show. And then when you do need to connect them, you, there are some jumpers. You just take uh, cam lock jumpers and... and jump them together. So typically the two transformers are uh, uh, jumped uh, daisy chained as the input, but um, the outputs can go to, you know, can be separated. Got it. Got it. And also, also what's really cool about it is in the back where the power plant is um, some really cool pictures of that. When we first built it, there's a Elko patch bay, I mean, excuse me, um, um, L530 patch bay, 30-amp uh, twist lock patch bay. So outputs from each transformer can be mixed and matched, plugged into UPSs, pulled off of UPSs. So if a UPS fails, I can very easily pull the panel, do a swap out, and we're ready to go. And that's happening at strategic points, meaning each panel also has... Uh, L530, so you can intercept, and let's say for an example, like what happened to us uh, a couple of months ago, we couldn't get 208, so we found six um, uh, six 20-amp breakers, you know, in the location, and just went with L530 to Edison adapters, and, and went right to the gear we need, right to the panels we needed to get to, and we're up and running. Wow. And um, I would have I would have liked to have done that. You know, all my trucks prior to Elroy were always everything was 120. Even though we would be able to take you know a uh, single phase uh, 240, 208, 
we, everything was 120, even the air conditioning. But to be able to uh, turn around, um, you know, to be able to cool and heat the vehicle, we really needed to have a, a, a 208 volt system. So the only thing that can't be, uh, you know, plugged into grandma's outlet at their at her house is the, you know, air conditioning on on the on the ladder trucks. Right, right. But getting back to you know, I was just uh, finish up. Getting back to the the tiny big mobile, which is the new van that we built. Everything's one one twenty on that. So, if we need uh, to get around the isolation, and there was no two oh eight voltage, uh, we can just plug in a few Edisons, and we're happening. Got it. Okay, most of the people that listen to this podcast, they're experienced studio engineers. That being said. What is the one thing that studio engineers don't know or don't understand about mobile recording? You know, I remember um, quite some time ago, many, I think in the 80s, great studio engineer, he's in my truck, and he, he, he turned around to me and he says, you know what, man, I always thought, you know, you learn how to become a recording engineer in a studio, then you can do anything. Because man, I got it wrong. It's the other way around. You become a remote recording engineer, then you can record anywhere, and and that's a, an interesting thing. People, you see, you, you get comfortable with this perfect environment, right? You're in a perfect studio. You designed it the way you'd like. You you know you got the proper lava lamps at the right temperature, so it's glistening the way you want it to glisten. But sometimes, you know, in a remote thing. You may have to put that lava lamp somewhere else. You know, you may have to deal with the fact that they parked you next to the dumpster. You know? <laughs> so what do you do? Does that you let that destroy your your mindset, or do you work out a solution to make it better? And and the fact of the matter of you know, like I I believe arguably there's really for a remote recording engineer in an isolated environment, meaning either a mobile unit or a properly set up, uh, you know, a portable rig. Um, there's no bad, there's no bad room because you can move the mic where it will work best. Now it's not perfect, but, but, you know, I've got so many engineers that have, you know, understood this and did a fabulous job with it because they've come from the background of live sound. But some of the guys, you know, and gals that come in and they got their white gloves on and nothing wrong with white gloves, you know. But sometimes if if if, if you can't get it the way you expect it, it shouldn't stop you from, from doing a great job and getting the best out of it. Where some of these folks, it just holds them back. It It, it, it gets them disappointed. Oh, well... In my studio, I have it like this. I go, well, we're not in your studio. This is a, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. Recording something in a house or something like that, and it, you know, you know, you're set up in a kitchen, you're set up in a closet, you're set up in a, a foyer. You know, it's like you got to deal with it. Now, if you have the budget or or the space to be able to bring in tube traps and stack it gobos and all that, and create a nice little room and play your 
the songs that you're you know familiar with and you get the room tuned up uh, reasonably well then you're in a better place many times uh that's not the case you know and you're thrown in a hallway so why should that stop you from doing a great job you know and and that's i think what i don't understand with with studio engineers you know and and i wish they spent more time out there kind of um you know experiencing ugliness because that ugly can get you some amazing things because it's it's like you know a better it puts you in my opinion it puts you in a better place when everything's always perfect you only got perfect you don't get that new nuance of wow i moved the mic in or 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 the you know trombonist you know moved the mic by mistake and wow it sounds better than ever you know yeah. it's like mistakes can be great you know problems can be great you know it's funny you should mention that because I've run into that on another side of the business. I used to produce television for a little bit, and whenever we would get a crew that was film-oriented, it would be the white gloves. It would be, oh, this has to be just right. This, Oh, stop everything because this light isn't in the right place. But when you get video guys, and especially guys that were, were used to doing news, they were running gun. They could care less uh, on what you know it right. was. They were just doing it. So it's the same mentality. It's about the capture. Yeah, it's the same mentality, really. Well, well, I, I always, you know, when it's funny that you just brought that up about lighting. I have this thing I say, I say, and you know, and when I say it, I'm pointing to my. I'm, I'm, I'm pointing to my wrist and mimicking a, a wristwatch. I go, hold for lighting, <laughs> wait for audio, pointing to my wrist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, you're always waiting for audio with these guys, film guys, you know? Yeah. It's like, why haven't you gotten the 64 microphone set up yet? Man, we gave you a half hour. Yeah, yeah, right. But, you know, you can spend like, you know, five hours setting up three lights, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then hold because oh wait a minute we'll we'll finish that after lunch you know it's like unbelievable we were on a a, a, a film a you know video a film style video shoot not too long ago which should have been a two day setup meaning setup day and shoot day and man they they expected clearly never done a live recording before and with all the moving parts that were happening. I basically said this is impossible to happen. If you let us get in at six in the morning, you park our vehicle, we get things happening. I'll have my stuff ready by 12 noon, even though I need eight hours, I will pull it off, but you have to get me parked and powered at 6 AM. So we didn't get parked. We get there at five 30 thinking, Oh, wow. They really are going to take us seriously. Hmm. We didn't get parked till 11 o'clock. Didn't get parked till one o'clock. And then we're flipping out. Why the hell audio hasn't been set up yet? Why we're not ready for a multiple. I mean, we're talking, we had nine people in, in the band that we were also providing monitors and in ears and all, you know, we weren't just doing the capture. We were also, doing a turnkey situation, which, you know, we love doing that kind of stuff, but we need time to set up. And, 
it was just, it, first of all, it was a freaking miracle that we were able to be ready by 5 p.m. Yeah. We got it all done. But, you know, we, we came back at one after lunch at 1 o'clock and got everything dialed in and ready to go, like, by by 5 o'clock, which was for us. But, you know, client and everybody's flipping out, of course, blaming us. And, you know, I would say, well, look, you know, we have to to be here to set up by six o'clock, you know, how do you expect it to happen? You, you know, it's live. It's not a, just a, you know, lip sync video shoot. And, uh, you know, they don't hear excuses. Like that's an excuse, you know? It's yeah. Like, okay. Well, all right. What do you want me to do about it? Next time, you know, that should be in writing. I mean, there are emails and stuff, but it should have been a contractual situation to go, knowing that you need an eight-hour day to set up comfortably, saying you can kind of pull it off by in five hours if you had proper time, five, six hours. You know, we'd, I'd say we'd be ready by, you know, 12, 1 o'clock, no problem. You know, and then and then every every chance they can, they kept screwing with us. Yeah. Because they had to get the condor parked in the, the lighting parked in the lighting grid parked in the right place and couldn't park the truck because they were still loading their stuff. Yeah. Like, but this is an audio thing, man. So it's, it's crazy, right? <laughs> so Steve, what's the most typical type of gig that you do? Well, the most typical type of gig we do is really just, uh, you know, capture a band, whether it's live to, uh, just audio or, or we're doing, um, a video shoot with an audio sync. Mm-hmm. So, um, a lot of the stuff, you know, just because of economics is portable these days, you know, so we have a variety of different rigs from super small to, you know, large, you know? And so, it, you know, the, that concept part of it is typical, but, but there's always this, these changes, you know, there's always these possible, um, well, we need to, we have no place for you to set up. Okay. Now what do we do? Okay. So we have to reinvent some, now we're in the balcony setup, or we set up at front of house or something like that. Um, I try to do my best not to be set up on stage. Because the preponderance of just the sound coming off the stage will never give you a balanced uh, concept of what's happening, uh, even with your headphones on, even with isolated headphones. You're, you know, so when you're out in the audience, let's say there's no room for you because it's all taken up uh, with band and and production. You know, I'd rather be in the balcony. I'd rather be at front of house. I'd rather be in the audience because at least you're getting a balanced mixed uh, by the engineer mixing. And so when you're putting your headphones on or delayed speakers, a lot of times we show up with a set of bookshelf speakers with a delay setup, So I can just, you know, be monitoring that way. I, I prefer that, but sometimes you don't have that option. And so that's, uh, that's how it is. I was just going to ask you if you're setting up in so many different places then what are you using for monitors that kind of translates in all those different situations? Well, you know, surprisingly, those, you know, what's replaced everything that we've ever used um, are the Neumann uh, KH120As. Uh, they're just, for, for the size speaker, the, 
the the amount of low end and accuracy that's coming out from those speakers are just outstanding. You know, it, it's just remarkable. Yeah. Now that being said, um, I used to use Mackies. You know, the oh the HR twenty eight twenty fours or something like that. Yeah. And somehow they um, were able to fit in a six rack space SKB case. One day. <laughs> I, we, uh, lack of a place, you know, that, that's where all my d- uh, design ideas come from is like mistakes or some happenstance. So one day, one of the guys put the speaker inside a case just to get it out of the way. And then I go, wait a minute, with a couple of sh- pieces of plywood, I can, we can mount these and this could be the thing. And that's what I, you know, in the old days when everything was in SKB cases, I'd have a left stack, a right stack and a center stack. And the two left and right stacks would have the Mackies on top, you know, that would fit perfectly and you could, you know, strap them in. And because of the fact, you know, they weren't the most amazing speakers on earth, but they took a beating and they were really loud and they had more low end than a Genelec. So, so that's what we were kind of, they were like workhorses back in the day. They were, they were awesome. And, um, you know, we were using them, you know, for quite a bit until the uh, until the um, until the Neumanns came around, and so now that's been my go-to speaker just for the fact that you can place two of those in their soft bag in the same space as one Mackie or Genelec. You know, right, right, right. Okay, so what's the most difficult thing that you have to do? The pre it, it, not that it's difficult, but what's the most important for me is is the pre-planning, mm. you know, to, to make sure, you know, I have this thing that I, I, I used to, uh, you know, we, we call it the, I call it the five components to a successful location recording. You know, it's sort of these five things are, are key. The most important thing, you know, the pre-production of talking to the band management, band producer, if it's, uh, if it's applicable, you know, band if possible, mm-hmm. you know, the venue people, any other production people that are involved, find out what all their needs are in advance. You know, like that's sort of more important than anything. Like find out what they need first before what you need. Right. Yeah. So then you can dial in how much of what you need based on what they need. So now you're like the perfect guest, right? When you show up to their home, so to speak, you're now their perfect guest, right? Because you understand their needs. Now you try to see how you can fit yours and, you know, surveying the location, right? You know, in person and, and, or over the phone sometimes is the only way. And whether it's some kind of video chat or, or, um, or emails and faxes and stuff like that, uh, whatever it takes to get an understanding of what it is, if you, if you can't be there, and uh, you know, emailing the uh, and faxing, uh, you know, that's not rarely done. The faxes, but they still are there. Up stage plots, input, song lists, track sheets, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, getting let's say information about all the wireless RF frequencies that might be needed because that could be a, a massive train wreck. Oh yeah, and then uh, cr- you know, creating a a location profile of the venue, the hotel, food spots, fun spots, you know, electronic media stores and places that need, you may need to be bailed out. When we do a, a, a show that's more than 
hundred feet, a hundred miles away from us. You know, we'll we'll map that out and know where all the Best Buys and the Sam Ashes and Guitar Centers are and all that stuff. And back in the day when when Radio Shack was the place, I mean, they used to always stock parts. I mean, you'd go there and get components. You know, oh, I need you know. Thirty-five, fifty-fours. You know, oh yeah, here we are. You know, here they are. Yeah. You call around and you get that stuff. So that's one component, and there's four others. So, of course, the other important thing is you know park power and electronic setup. You know, leveling the vehicle, installing the permits, running the feeder cable, running your snakes and the harnesses. You know, the stage setup, all the splitters and sub snakes and mics and all that stuff, and then who's handling what? You know, sometimes. If you're just doing a couple of nights during a tour that's out, typically we would go at whatever the front of house and monitor uh, crew is uh, using and then maybe augment some additional mics if it's okay with them. And uh, so that's that's kind of uh, an important thing too, that dynamic of, well, I know my overhead mics are going to work perfect, but theirs may not. Now, how do we negotiate and massage the conversation to allow us to either add our mics or or sub out our mics? And uh, sometimes, you know, they're you know they're pretty cool about it. You know, if if it's a if it's a one off, chances are they're going to do what what we're suggesting because they know it's our sh- it's 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 for the video or it's for the live broadcast or whatever we're doing live stream so you know it, it, but if it's during the tour you really kind of just want to you know follow their path and see if you can add a second mic or something you know a few extra mics when necessary and then of course you know third part of it is getting that sound check and rehearsal in you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, of course the fourth part is doing the show and get it recorded properly and paying attention. And, and just as important as that pre-production is to strike the set and retreat, get out of there with all your gear, <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> right. that's the thing, you know? So sometimes, you know, if you, if you don't have your, your stuff figured out and planned out, you know, you, you don't have notes. You're like, Oh wow. Remember that mic we hung you know, 30 feet somewhere, blah, blah, blah. Well, we left it in Ohio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, how are we going to get it back? So so these are kind of the key, you know? Okay, so when you're preparing beforehand, does that include also uh, a template on the console? You know where everything is going to go, and you kind of know what the EQ and the effects and compression and all that stuff is, or is that kind of a wait until the sound check and see what happens type of thing? Well, you know that that's a great question, and and a, and it has been an argument uh, for for decades actually uh, about that concept. And I must tend, I, I must, I'm I, I, I'm leaning towards the fact. I mean, I understand how people understand that. How could you be setting stuff that you don't know what it's going to sound like? And you know what? I'd rather start off with that. I'd rather start off with what I think I might need, and then use it or not use it than to be creating 60 some odd channels of, of all of that right on the spot. 
because you're lucky if you get the band in there for five minutes, right? So if we're not there, dial in, you know, scratch and sniff all the microphones and DIs prior to them showing up so you have all the proper mic levels, throw it into record for a virtual sound check later, um, you're, you're really screwed. So what we do is we have all EQs and compressors engaged with, with the compressors having similar, um, you know, having, having adjustments, but the threshold completely wide open, so it's hardly hitting it. Mm-hmm. So the only thing you're doing is now adjusting the threshold, bring it into play. And then certain sets of, of channels that we would, um, so if it's our show and we're not dealing with an input list, this works out great. So for an example, you have a template of 64 inputs. We may say the first 16 inputs are the rhythm track, you know, the, the back line, drums, bass, guitar. Mm-hmm. And that would go into a stereo stem that um, would then hit the two bus. So on a live show, we do this a lot for Newport folk and Newport jazz. Um, we it, it took it took many years. We started doing Newport folk and Newport jazz in 2008, and so this will be our tenth year. Um, and it it I think around 2012, I, I just ha- had to figure out a way to how do we get the show to sound gr- decent by the first song. Because most of the time, that's your sound check, you know, first couple of songs. You're lucky if you can get it together in two songs. Right? Yeah, yeah. So what always happens when it everything used to go to the stereo bus, if you got one one microphone much louder than the other or they're screaming into it, it's going to take down everything else. So what I do is I create anywhere from four to eight stereo buses that certain type of you know, so it'll be, let's say, for an example, the the backline drum, bass, guitar. Then it'd be all the keyboards would be a second stem, and then the third stem might be an acoustic stem that would be all the horns or a string section and vocal section, background, and then uh, audience. So then, at any point, those and then what I do is attach a type of limiter or compressor on those on those stereo stems that mimic what I'm going for and have the different types of adjustment and parametric adjustment adjustment that warrants what a string sound would be or what your horns would be what you want to do so each each section each group has its own thing so if so now when first song hits and all of a sudden, background singers are blasting away because we didn't anticipate a loud singer. Those background vocals will only be affecting their their stem, and the compressor will latch on to that and not take down the rest of the stuff. So it gives you a great shot of where to be at. There's a um, we did that for the first time in 2012. And a great representation of that would be Alabama Shakes um, during the Newport Folk Festival. So if you go to NPR Music Archives and look for Alabama Shakes live from uh, Newport Folk 2012, and you hear that mix, okay, guitar's a little too loud, but man, you listen to that mix and you go, wow, this is like no sound check. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's like, why does it sound like this, you know? Wow. So, um, and, and that's sort of like, 
an amazing way to deal with it. I, I, you know, I don't know how many other people are doing it that way. I, I, I'm sure there are folks out there that realize, you know, on a live event, this is what you need to do. And, uh, and, and that's, that's where it's at, man. And, and so, so the broadcast, um, you know, the broadcast uh, template will have these multiple uh, channels. And, and then, you know, so of course, if instead of the first, so let's say channels one through 16 is going their first stereo stem and 17, let's say 17 through 24, just eight channels is the keyboards. You know, if that has to be adjusted, that's something you can do once you get your input list and just change that out. Say, oh, wow, I only need 12 channels on the back line. Oh, I need, you know, eight channels on this or that, you know, you can make those simple adjustments on the call. And, uh, even back in the old days when we were, we still, even though it's a digital desk and stuff, we still use artist tape and write down stuff and have those strips and put them down. Cause I like seeing that stuff. I, I enjoy the fact that there they are, you know, what desk is it? Uh, well, it really depends on what we're doing. We have all different flavors, you know, all, you know, we have Midas consoles, we have Soundcraft consoles. Uh, sometimes we have a Digico uh, available. All really depends on what the budget is and what I need and, you know, what the workflow requirements are. Got it. But um, with the tiny big mobile, uh, we have a, a, a Soundcraft uh, VI3000 in there. Ah, okay. Are you recording the Pro Tools usually? Yeah, what we do, most of our rigs now, we used to have a, a, a double redundant setup, and now it's a triple redundant setup. So it would each rig, each record rig has has a Pro Tools setup plus um, two standard digital recorders, meaning like either Tascam DA6400s or the sound devices, which their video um, version, uh, video devices, Pix 270Is are in there. Those are really awesome recorders in the sense that they can record up to 64 channels of audio embedded into video, or you can just turn it into a sound devices 970 and just have wave files recording. But what's clever about it is it's sort of like a Swiss army knife. You know, you can have up to 64 channels of Maddie, 64 channels of Dante, eight channels of AES, eight channels of analog wow. and any combination of that, you go into the router. So let's say for an example, we're doing a show and it's a live broadcast and the front of house guy knows exactly what those effects should be. Well, we may take a Dante output from them of a, of a matrix, have it come in, show up on the, uh, whatever channels they need to be. And there, there you go. We, that we're feeding, getting a feed from them now digitally with one cable running. And then I always, you know, I always monitor through the recorders. So this goes back from back in the day when we were doing two inch recording where um, the one machine would stay in input, but I'm hearing Mike Pree's going to the machine, out of the machine, into the console. Now I'm doing my show. So, um, it was the oh I've always felt like I wanted to hear everything. I want to guarantee that I'm hearing everything that I'm hearing coming out of that machine, and I still do the same uh, with recorders. I get really 
frustrated when I have guest engineers that don't get that concept and say, no, I don't want to listen through the machine. I want to, I want to just mix the show. I go, well, yeah, but this is guarantees you that you've got everything coming through. Sure. Well, what happens if that fails? Well, yeah, sure. Exactly. What happens if that fails? Then, you know, it failed instead, you know, and then you can do something about it, you know, instead of figuring it out after the show and saying, Oh, I don't have a show. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And right. and what's so cool about it, we have an RME Maddie router because uh, we our workflow usually is a Maddie solution, right? So we have an RME uh, Maddie router. So at any point we can listen to the output of the stage box, listen to the output of any of the recorders. So at any time when well, let's say we do a sound check. I'm usually monitoring uh, through one of the digital recorders, like either the PIX 270i or a DA6, um, DA6400. So, you know, at any point, um, so when we're ready to play back, I either play back any of those machines or the Pro Tools session. Right. right. And when um, we have to do a remix or something up while we're during the show, we'll just switch the MADI router to that output of the Pro Tools rig and start mixing right there and then, you know. Wow. And um, it, it's a great way to deal with it, I think. Steve, there's so much more that we could talk about because I got tons of questions, but I, I don't want to keep you all day, so here's my last question for you. You've been in business for almost ever for your adult life. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, pretty much. That being the case, you know what it's like to be a small businessman. What's the best piece of business advice that you've learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Well, you know, I'm the worst businessman because I always go with my heart. I always go with my my first impression about things. And I, I also like to, you know, uh, grasp the, the mistakes that happen or the incorrect sound that might be there and figure out a way to make it better. I say go with your heart is kind of the most true. Now, whether it's the smartest business sense, <laughs> I don't know. It's a sort of like a loaded question because I'll still take doing it the right way. You know, the idea of, of making it right for the band, uh, you know, and your client, probably in that order. Uh, even though that's not a, the smartest business sense, right? Your client should come first. But yeah, yeah. For, for me, it's always been about the band. It's always been about capturing that and making it the best it can be. And and moreover, the fact of the matter that you can, you know, um, figure out, you know, like people say, well, geez, Steve, what's your sound? And what my sound, or I think what I can bring to the table as a producer and engineer is how to bring out the best in a band or in a situation, opposed to putting my sound on it. You know, it's like saying, you know, you, you, you hire a person that does something really good, and then you ask them to do something completely different. It's just not cool, right? So. Yeah. So imagine, you know, you, you see a band and you figure out what their pluses and minuses are and you embellish the pluses and you try to minimize the minuses. And so that to me, you know, getting the that sound, getting your sound by bringing out the best in the bands you work with, first of all, doesn't pigeonhole you into any situation. 
um, of any particular genre of music. You know, I pretty much worked in every genre of music. And if you go uh, and, and listen to some of the stuff I've done, you go, wow, each one of these sounds like that band and it sounds awesome. You know, so, you know, I didn't put any kind of magic on there besides just figuring out what's the best it can be. And I think, you know, your first impressions and, and, and trying to get detailed orientation of who you're working with, what you're doing is key. You know, it, it, it's the key to success, I think. And then hire a good business manager. <laughs> oh, there you go. Right. <laughs> you can find out more about Stephen Arasonic at arasoniclimited.com. A-U-R-A-S-O-N-I-C-L-T-D. Arasoniclimited.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyownersircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownersircle.com, where you can find an iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownersircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>